We just sang a moment ago, let every effort of my life display the matchless worth of Christ. What a prayer, right? If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts 17, two things before we dive in and we joyfully place ourselves under the authority of God's word. If you are looking for a quality read this summer, we just wanna highlight this book, J.I. Packard, Knowing God. This is kind of our book in focus this month. Many of you look for quality reads. We would recommend that heartily to you. Also, if you forgot a phone in the women's bathroom, Vivian Varble is gonna put this in the Connection Center afterwards. So now to what we're here to do, right? Acts 17, we're gonna be in verse 16. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had a focus on, in one way or another, on the spiritual discipline of evangelism. If you ask believers, what discipline do I want to grow in? Do I need to improve in? What am I convicted and reproved in? It would be prayer and evangelism. We're gonna spend one more week really around this theme and this discipline. If you're taking notes today, the main idea of Acts 17, 16 through 21 would be the following. Faithful evangelists, and we all wanna be that, Faithful evangelists are those who respond to a holy provocation. Faithful evangelists are those who respond to a holy provocation. One of our children's educational programs is called Faces of History. And some years ago, Lawson picked an individual that over time now even has a holiday in the month of March that bears his name. While rivers are dyed and on this day people wear green on St. Patrick's Day, it's on this day that I am often reminded of how too content and complacent I am towards the lost, content in my own efforts of evangelism. St. Patrick's Day was originally instituted to remember a great evangelist of Christ, Patrick of Ireland. And although we remember him as an Irish icon, Patrick was actually English. He was born in England, AD 389. And at the age of 16, Patrick would be captured by Irish pirates and he would be sold to an Irish chief by the name of Milku. Well, six years later, Patrick escaped. He traveled back to England, he made his way back and there he becomes a Christian. After maturing as a believer, Patrick proceeded to do the unthinkable. He went back to Ireland, the very place that he was horrifically treated. You see, Ireland was entirely a pagan country with no true knowledge of the saving God. And so in AD 431, Patrick landed in Ireland and traveled up and down the coast of Ireland, preaching the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and pleading with the Irish to come to the Lord for salvation. By his grace, God granted Patrick tremendous success, seeing thousands upon thousands become followers of Jesus Christ, even one by the name of Milku, his former slave master. Such success that from an earthly plane, many credited Patrick with breaking the power of paganism in Ireland, and yet we know who's responsible for these things. The work was so expansive that 40 years after Patrick's death, this formerly pagan country was almost entirely Christian. Now friends, what is most extraordinary about Patrick's life and ministry is that it's extraordinary at all. 
Patrick's life impacts us as unique because his recognition of Israel, uh, Israel Irish, uh, Ireland's spiritual need, as well as his drive to proclaim the gospel is often a foreign mindset to many modern Christians. Observing the desperate state of sinners and our responsibility to proclaim the gospel is a novel idea for many. And that's because in many ways evangelism, if we are honest, is often seen as a burden that might just interrupt our daily schedules. And so what do we do? Well, we keep to ourselves when then our closely guarded confines, our Christian bubbles, while our consciences lie numb to the lost around us who, mind you, are heading headlong into judgment completely unprepared. The book that I recommended earlier, Jake I. Packer correctly assessed this problem in knowing God when he wrote, there are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and being, bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways. While the eternal state of souls hangs in the balance, we often hope their precarious situation does not interfere with our lives. Patrick would not shirk his responsibility of evangelism, nor would the one whose example he emulated, the one apostle Paul. You see, in Acts 17, Paul observes and boldly confronts the depths of man's spiritual depravity there in Athens. And to set the stage of what we're about to read, the book of Acts, you know full well, is Luke's second gospel, uh, volume to his gospel, right? It's written to record the expansion of Christianity from a small corner of Israel to the entire Roman Empire in roughly 30 years. And the undeniable implication of all of this is that this faith, this Christianity is not a local cultural religion. This is the one true need of the entire world propelled by people who understood the great spiritual need of men and the only hope that is found in Jesus Christ. If you read with me this morning, now this scene in verse 16, it records that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Luke is setting the context for the great and upcoming sermon that we know in verses 22 through 31. And while that sermon is often the focus, I would like to draw our attention to the fact that Paul was not planning on ministering in Athens. 
We know from the text that on his second missionary journey, what is happening here, the verses prior, is that Paul has actually fled Thessalonian Jews and he's in Athens waiting for his buddies, right? Timothy and Silas, his ministry partners, verses 14 and 15. And the text says, while waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for his ministry partners to join him. And while waiting, what's happening? He's observing. This is not, friends, a a calculated crusade that we're observing. No, this is the natural response of a man who's burdened with the gospel for the lost. And I dare say that Paul's consuming desire and example here in this text should do a number of things to you and I. One, it should reprove me and it should instruct me. And that is our hope and prayer this morning. You see in verses 16 through 21, you and I receive three very clear tests as to our commitment to evangelism so that we might what? So that we might determine whether we too have become complacent towards the lost. Test number one this morning, verse 16 through 17, is to simply ask, are you provoked by the world? Are you provoked by the world? I would attach to that, church family, if not, something is horribly wrong. If you are not provoked by the world, there are sub-questions to be asking in a very spirit-directed state of introspection is to, to simply ask, perhaps, am I not viewing the world as the Lord does? Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Church family, we can make and should make two thought-provoking observations here. Number one is the import of this is I must view the world through the lens of the gospel. I must view the world through the lens of the gospel. You see, Athens, just to unpack this for a moment, and you're familiar with the city, this is the intellectual and cultural center of the Western world in that day. It was the birthplace of philosophy with many philosophical schools. Think Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. This is a university city with many students. Think like a modern day Oxford or Cambridge. And so notice the juxtaposition here. The world saw Athens as what? This is humanity at its best. What did Paul see? Paul saw the truth. Athens was a pit of spiritual blindness and he was provoked by it. Paul saw the world as the Lord does. But we also, while we want to see the world as the Lord does, we should also feel about the world as the Lord does. You see, the world marveled, oohed and awed at the Athenian art. And while the world marveled at these things, Paul was, you notice it in the text, he was horrified at their idolatry. It says he was observing the city full of idols. Athens held over 30,000 public idols and that excluded the private ones. And the largest collection of idols was right here at the main entrance of the city where Paul would have entered. 
a common day slogan in that day, it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man. So many were their gods. And so what was Paul's soul gripping response to what he was observing? Notice what it says, his spirit was being provoked. Friends, Paul was angered over the Athenian idolatry. This is a remarkably strong word here. This literally means to be enraged, to be stirred to action. He could not help himself. His anger was not passing, it was continuous. There was an onslaught of everything he observed was stirring up something in his soul as he was observing the lostness of man on display at the very entrance of the city. Now, some people say, well, that's easy for Paul. Paul was a fanatic. He was zealous. Friends, I would argue Paul was not a fanatic. He was not being fanatical towards the world. He was being biblical, no? He saw the world as the Lord does and he felt about the world as the Lord does. This word here provoked is the same exact word used in the Septuagint for whose anger towards idolatry? Yahweh's, God's anger. Paul was feeling as God feels about these things. Now walking among idolaters, as we read this text and we kind of fast forward to 2023, this is not exclusive to ancient Greece, is it? This occurs every single day. And that is because, and here's where your theology comes in, is that idolatry is the universal condition of every human soul. Paul describes it in Romans 1. You know it full well. They, humanity, exchanged the truth of God for a what? A lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Every man is predisposed to worship anything else other than God. It's why Calvin called our hearts the factory of idols. We don't need coaching or teaching to produce these things of which our allegiance lies. Northlake, you and I no longer work, walk into an entrance of a city seeing idols of gold and silver, to be sure. But make, make no mistake about it, the entrance to every human heart is lined with greed and lust and pride and envy. And brothers and sisters, that should do something to us. It should provoke us. It should stir us to action. If you are not provoked by the world, you must ask if you view the world as the Lord does. But secondly, you should ask, am I engaging the world as the Lord desires? Look at verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. There's a few takeaways here for you and I from Paul's example. One is that we must not run toward isolation, but engage the world with the gospel. Do what is often counter to your own internal disposition. The text says so, or therefore indeed, means that the Athenians' idolatry had literally launched and compelled Paul to preach. He couldn't do anything else. He couldn't help himself. 
And so he goes about reasoning. Paul persisted in lecturing and persuading the Athenians with the gospel. This was his MO. Paul's MO was not to retreat in isolation, but to engage. We too must not run to isolation. We are compelled to engage ourselves. But also I think the second is just to, we must not remain where it is also comfortable. You see, it was Paul's custom to preach to Jews and God-fearing on the Sabbath. We see it earlier in verse two of chapter 17. And Paul in between decidedly spent his weekdays teaching those Greeks or Gentiles who were lost as lost can be. And they were going to about living their lives, running headlong into judgment, completely unprepared. So what did Paul do? Paul goes into the marketplace. This is the very center of Athenian life. It contained public buildings and pagan temples and the Senate, political assembly halls, law courts, as well as numerous shops and merchants. And this area would have been full of what was known as porches, which were used for debate and teaching by various philosophers of this day. I'll be honest with you, it sounds like a very intimidating place. And so Paul doesn't remain where it's comfortable. He walks right on in and he brings the gospel to the very center of human society and he engages. He engages the world with the gospel. We also note that he doesn't waste any time doing so, does he? It was not unusual for Paul to preach in this manner. The text says literally every day. The way it's written there is it's just during. As Paul is living, he's preaching. As he's walking, he's proclaiming. Why? Because he's provoked. He cannot waste any daylight. Every moment has to be utilized for the gospel. Friends, this is incredibly convicting in my own life. You see, like most Athenian visitors, our lives look very different than Paul, unfortunately, to our shame. Instead of engaging the world with the gospel, we oftentimes become passive observers to that which we see. And if we be not careful, we even become admirers of human idolatry. We become enamored, so enamored with man's culture that gross tributes to false pagan deities become great works of art to us. No, wait, not not me. But in practice, that's exactly what happens. Just give you a pastoral exhortation this morning. You and I are, we live in a world that is broken and full of sin. It is not what it was created to be. The import of this is that you and I cannot allow our exposure to sin to desensitize us from how God feels about these things. You see, as Satan works in society, even our language begins to betray us to the point where we refer to adultery as an affair. We refer to the perversion of homosexuality as being gay. This self-indulgence of drunkenness is alcoholism. And yet, meanwhile, God's wrath is impending upon sinners. What are we doing? We're distracting ourselves with human euphemisms. 
Friends, we should be stirred to action. We should be provoked to bring the gospel, as Richard Baxter said, to the cemetery of souls in which we live. If you and I are not provoked by the world, something is wrong. Our response to the world is not our only test to our commitment to evangelism, but so is the world's response to us. Look at verse 18. Test number two, is the world provoked by you? Is the world provoked by you? Again, I would add, if not, church, something is horribly, horribly wrong. Verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was beginning to create a stir. He was provoked, but his faithfulness, his stewardship of the gospel was also provoking others. Now, if you can honestly answer, wait, I don't know if the world is provoked by me. I I think there's a few sub-questions to begin asking ourselves is perhaps we are avoiding conflict with false religion. That's a little too testy. Be frank with you this morning, the gospel has always been opposed by religions of pleasure and self-sufficiency. Let me say that again. The gospel has always been opposed by religions of pleasure and self-sufficiency. Always has and always will. You see, the Epicurean philosophers that Paul confronted sought pleasure and the absence of pain and anxiety as the pinnacle of life, the chief in demand, the goal of all things. And so of course, they would find this idea of a resurrected Jesus, who mind you had suffered and died and their mission is to avoid such things. They would have found this Jesus that Paul was speaking of as being incredibly peculiar and even strange. The Stoics were pretty similar, but they prided themselves in inner strength and moral duty. They emphasized rationality. And so friends, any notion of a weak and crucified God would have sparked little interest to the Stoics. In fact, they considered Paul to be a basket case who was babbling on and on and on about something that their particular world had zero tolerance for, a weak and crucified savior. And the takeaway for you and I, friends, and you need to import this into your life, the preaching of the gospel will always spark conflict with false religion. It will always spark conflict. You come bringing a message, not of self-sufficiency, not of a promise of health and wealth in the absence of pain. You hold out to them life through the work of another who died in their place. And it beckons them to give allegiance to this savior and king. That will always spark conflict. The text says they were conversing. (laughs) That's code for this is a lively debate, right? The word there, it's, it's, this, is a, this is a tense, hostile, forceful exchange of opinions. This a debate would have been continuous. It would have been lengthy. It might've been uncomfortable, perhaps for yourself to be in the midst of, oh, I'm glad that was Paul and not me. Ride in the epicenter of Athens, 
No thanks. Friends, conflict with false religion cannot and should not ever deter us and cause us to relent in gospel proclamation. How often do we ignore Mormons? How often do we ignore Catholics just to keep the peace, right? No church family, we must understand the grave danger of their souls and address the lies that they have embraced just as Paul did. There's an account of a woman in North Carolina who had received not long ago a $20 bill from her bank only to realize it was a counterfeit bill. And so she proceeds to go back to the bank that gave her that form of currency and she found her second surprise of the day, the bank would not make good on the false bill. In fact, the bank confiscated the money, informed the FBI and refused to give her a replacement $20 bill, much to her dismay. One FBI agent commented to her, ma'am, this is a game much like hot potato. He who is found holding the false bill last takes the loss. Well, friends, the counterfeit alternatives to the truth of God's word are a far serious game of hot potato, is it not? Regardless of the credibility or the prestige of its source, those who are not holding the legal tender of Christ's righteousness, everything that the Lord's table is going to picture for us in the moment, those who are not holding the legal tender of Christ's righteousness are going to be judged under unrelenting wrath. And so the question for us is how then could we possibly sit idly by and avoid confrontation just because it's uncomfortable. How could we sit idly by when we know that the false religious claims of our day only lead this world to a Christless, wrath-filled eternity? Fierce opposition is going to arise. Men and women, the precarious position of souls should drive us, provoke us, and compel us to deliver the gospel to their ears, amen? If the world is not provoked by you, you may be avoiding conflict with false religion, but you must also question whether or not you are avoiding ridicule from the world. Look at verse 18, it says, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the uh, resurrection. Proclamation of the gospel will never be esteemed by the world's elite. It just won't. They refer to him as an idle babbler. Uh, Paul was given a, a great insult by these philosophers. They literally call him a seed picker. It was used to birds, junk collectors in the marketplace. It referred to a worthless plagiarizer who just went along plucking out ideas from other people, using them for themselves with no true understanding. This is a serious form of ridicule. And not only will the proclamation of the gospel never be esteemed by the world's elite, it wasn't then, it isn't now, but the proclamation of the gospel can also lead to some pretty serious threats. Look what they say, they call him a proclaimer of strange deities. Now this is not an idle observation, this is a threat. Mind you, this is the exact accusation made against Socrates 
who would later be executed in 399 BC. Paul was creating such a stir among the Athenians who despised foreign gods, even a, even, even a, a group in a society, they celebrated poly, polytheism, right? Many gods. But foreign gods were looked upon with a bit of cynicism, right? What are these strange things that you are speaking of? We even know from church history that some thought resurrection, and resurrection Anastasius, to be a reference to the second female goddess alongside Jesus. There was massive confusion. What are these peculiar things? This resurrection idea was shocking to them. And even among a polytheistic society, to be found to be a proclaimer of strange deities was a major form of ridicule and even put one's life potentially in danger. It is true, ridicule and threats often naturally scare us and deter us from sharing, does it not? We don't relish the opportunity to be ridiculed, to be belittled, to be insulted and threatened, and yet this is our call. And this will be the response of men and women who need to hear the gospel. Friends, the lordship of a holy God and repentance in his name will always, always, always be repulsive to sinful, idolatrous people. It just will. Holy God, sinful man, he is king. Allegiance lies with him. All the work he has wrought and accomplished for the procuring of your salvation, you bring nothing. This is repulsive to self-reliant, arrogant, idolatrous people. Even the Athenians' own philosophers recognize this. Socrates' pupil, Plato, remarked, the just man will be whipped, bound, and in the end, when he has undergone every sort of evil, he'll be crucified. Then he will know that no one should wish to be truly just. 400 years before Christ, the Greek philosophers recognized that this world would reject and murder the perfectly just man. Humans are naturally opposed to all that is truly holy and calls them outside of their idolatry. Paul would not have been shocked by this. His theology helped frame his understanding of what was going on in Athens that day. He knew that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. Friends, as we are reminded by the world that our message is often seen as foolishness, we remember what? It is the power of God. Knowing this, we cannot shirk our responsibility. We must provide this dead and opposing world with their only hope. And as that is the saving message of Jesus Christ. A true commitment to evangelism means that you are provoked by the world and the world is provoked by you. The final test to determine whether you have become complacent towards the loss, test number three, are you seizing opportunities to proclaim Christ? Are you seizing opportunities to proclaim Christ? Again, I would add, church, if not, something is horribly, horribly wrong. 
One reason people don't seize opportunities in front of them is perhaps they are proclaiming a different message entirely. And yet at the end of verse 18, we see that Paul was doing what? He was preaching a very simple message, Jesus and the resurrection. Friends, our only word to ridiculing idolaters is the message of Christ, right? Colossians 1.29, we proclaim him, admonishing every man that we may present them complete in Christ. It was Paul's preaching of Jesus and the resurrection that caused a commotion that brought about the accusations. And what did Paul do? What was his response? He didn't bring the message, friends, of morality and self-help and politics. No, despite the reaction, Paul was faithful and persistent to preach Christ and his resurrection. Why? It's because salvation is only through Christ. Acts 4.12, right? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no one else. There's no other message. There's no other pathway. I would ask you this morning, are you proclaiming another message? One of the things we celebrate here at Northlake is to make sure everyone has a clear Articulation of the gospel. You can share the gospel, the tenets of the gospel. How a sinful man is made right in the sight of holy God. How does that take place? You should be able to speak it. You may not be the most artful. It may come through a quivering voice, but you should be able to speak it. Why? It's because church, it goes without saying, the only message able to bring dead sinners to life is the message of the one who's able to raise the dead. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. This is important for us as a local church. It's important for those that we partner with that go out from among us. It's important because unfortunately, many in the church today are prostituting out their gospel preaching pulpits for either the vain promises of politics or the empty wisdom of self-help gurus. Friends, if you are not seizing opportunities to preach Christ, you may have taken up another message. Do you know the gospel? Can you say the gospel, speak the gospel? Maybe you have the right message, but maybe you are not watching appropriately as you should. Are you watching for opportunities to proclaim Christ? Look at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And there's a parenthetical statement. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And yet even in the midst of this cultural climate, they are opposed to the apostle Paul. There's two takeaways for us in closing. It is often that our inconvenience is an appointment for the gospel. The text says they took him. They took him. I'll be honest with you. The Athenians didn't request Paul to accompany them. Let's just say they forcefully encouraged him. Okay. And so they take him to the Areopagus, which was the primary judicial body of Athens. 
It's named after the hill of Ares, the god of war, and it was found in the marketplace of that day, right in the middle of the city. It was the leading body that had authority over everything, education, religion, politics. And those who dragged him to the Areopagus simply said, may we know. He was not brought for an impartial discussion. They wanted him to explain his teachings, speak plain, and we're gonna decide what to do with you and whether or not to silence you. See, it's important for you and I to know that in that day, the fame of Athens rested upon its intellectual climate. And so anything that would come in and threaten that was taken very seriously. May we know. The second takeaway is not only that our inconvenience is often an appointment for the gospel, but we should never disregard an open and willing audience. The Athenians desired something quite new or the latest thing. And the Athenians' desire for new ideas was well known. It was known around the world that they enjoyed intellectual dialogue. And Luke's final editorial is an important observation. Paul had seized the opportunity. He didn't complain he had no time. He didn't even argue that he had not planned to minister in Athens. There was no bemoaning or grumbling that it wasn't in his schedule. He was simply faithful. Paul was so provoked by the world that it was his passion to disturb the world and seize opportunities to proclaim Christ. Church, I wanna encourage you this day as we're excited over the months and weeks and years ahead what the Lord's gonna do for his own glory around the world, yes? Also what the Lord is gonna do for his own glory right across the street. You and I will never have a biblical ministry until we decide to emulate this example. Are you provoked by the world? Is the world provoked by you? And are you faithful to seize opportunities for the gospel? Let me give you three areas of encouragement in terms of living what we learn. One is just imploring faithful global missions partnerships. This affects everything, how we pray, how we care, how we give. Faithful global missions partnerships. Secondly, faithful local outreach. In the weeks ahead, we'll, at North Lake, we'll have everything from you know, evangelism equipping and training. I, I wanna become more proficient in sharing the gospel. You have all you need. I just wanna practice and get better so that I can be a better steward day in and day out. We're gonna have market days where small groups take kind of ownership of just an event that's already happening. We're gonna be present for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Small groups reach week, right? Every month when we gather, it's an intentionality that we encourage neighbors, coworkers, unbelieving family members. Do not allow reach week. And this is convicting for myself. That's That's not an off week for small groups, incredibly challenging for myself. Be intentional, who am I having over? Let's invite someone. What, who am I engaging in my neighborhood, on the street or at work? Incredible reproof bound up in this. And then third, just faithful daily living. I'm talking real, caring, organic relationships in every day. The text says every day. As Paul was living, he was proclaiming. I would like to close, but just, let's just read the sermon. What is it that Paul says? <laughs> what does he say? 
Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Translation, he rules and reigns and gives you the very breath that you breathe. He's done, done this so that you would seek him. Perhaps they might grow for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, meaning being that we are made in his image, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Northlake, we could spend another few weeks just examining that sermon, but for the sake of time this morning, let me just say this. I am both humbled and convicted as I read Acts 17. I'm reproved as I step into the shoes of the one who stepped in Athens this day. He was not provoked by the ills of society. He was provoked by the idolatry of souls. His heart was not enraged over the fact that men and women were being oppressed at the hands of unjust men. He was enraged over the fact that men and women were being pressed at the hands of sin, death, and the devil. And so when he stands up in the Areopagus in verse 22, what was his mission? Well, what was the action that he was stirred to undertake? It was not to remove the ills of society by laboring to see the earth restored to his kind of original garden state. It wasn't to rid the world of human trafficking and poverty and hunger. It wasn't even to reconcile people groups with one another. No, it was simply and unashamedly to proclaim that message, which is able to do what? Able to reconcile sinful man with holy God. His heart was provoked to proclaim the gospel. Do you and I care about those who are hungry and oppressed and exploited? Yes. Friends, our chief concern is that they would be found holding the legal tender of Christ's righteousness. Our main objective is not to see justice reign upon the earth. It's to see men and women prepared to stand before he who is just. We read it earlier in Psalm 96, right? He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. Paul says he's fixed a day and he's coming and people are not prepared. I know the elders of this church, our prayers, Lord, make us faithful messengers of the gospel. We're gonna celebrate that gospel in just a moment around the table, amen? If you'll go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes, let's ask the Lord's help, not only with the application of our text, but also our celebration of what he has done. Father, we're mindful 
of what the book of Hebrews so clearly conveys to us, that it is appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. We thank you that there is one mediator that stands between us and a holy God, such that we can face our judge without fear of condemnation and without the angst of wrath that we rightfully deserve. Lord, this table that we're about to worship around is a reminder of this very salvation. We ask that you not only help us to do so now in a worthy manner, but that you would also then send us out provoked within to share the saving gospel of Christ. And Father, we plead and ask for your glory and by your great power that you would be delighted to bring many, many people to yourself. For your great name we pray, amen.